Al-Bayan Radio presents an explanation of Kitab al-Iman from Sahih Muslim presented by Sheikh Muhammad Duar. Alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man ihtada bihuda amma ba'd. My dearly respected brothers and sisters, we continue tonight of Kitab al-Iman from Sahih Muslim. And in our previous lesson, we took the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ when the delegate from Bani Abdul Qais came to him asking him for advice regarding their religion so that they can take it back to their people and teach them. And the Prophet ﷺ told them, I command you to do things and I prohibit you from four. And he commanded them with the shahada of La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah and to pay the zakat and to pray their prayers, pay the zakat and to give a fifth of the spoils of war. And then he prohibited them from the four different types of utensils that they drink from. And we mentioned that the reason why he mentioned those utensils was because they speed the process of making the drink become an intoxicant. And that is why Rasulullah prohibited it. Then we also mentioned that there is a hadith that abrogated that ruling, meaning the ruling of drinking from the four different types of jugs or utensils and the prophet said i prohibited you from them but you can drink from them as long as you abstain from intoxication and that was the ruling by the prophet and this is the ruling that stands you can drink from any utensil obviously not gold and silver because we know that is prohibited but anything else is okay as long as you avoid intoxicating drinks. That hadith was also narrated by Abu Sa'id al-Khudri, radiyallahu ta'ala anhu, and Imam Muslim mentioned the narration of Abu Sa'id al-Khudri, radiyallahu ta'ala anhu. And in the narration of Abu Sa'id al-Khudri, there was slight differences to the previous uh, narrations and from them was they were saying to the Prophet they would say may we lay may Allah allow us to lay down our lives for you okay and then they would ask which drink is good for us and the Prophet ﷺ said to them, you should not drink in wine jars. And that's the similar to the previous hadiths that we spoke about. So in that narration, Abu Sa'id al-Khudri radiallahu anhu was the narrator. And Abu Sa'id al-Khudri radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he's the imam and the mujahid and the mufti of Medina in his time. Radiallahu ta'ala anhu, the great companion, his name was Sa'ad ibn Malik ibn Sinan ibn Tha'laba. So Abu Sa'id al-Khudri, that was his fa- that's how he was famously known. 
Everyone knows him as Abu Sa'id al-Khudri, radiyallahu anhu, but that's his kunya. His actual name is Sa'ad ibn Malik, radiyallahu ta'ala anhu. And he narrated from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam many ahadith. And he also narrated from the other companions. He narrated from Abu Bakr and he narrated from Umar, radiyallahu ta'ala anhum. And he was considered to be from the fuqaha al-kibar, the major scholars of Islamic rulings. And he passed away in the year 74 Hijri. So he lived a long time after Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And in his narration of the hadith, we benefit a number of lessons from them is that his hadith teaches us to explain the reasons why things are haram if the hikmah is known to us. Because in his narration, the Prophet ﷺ, when he told them not to drink from those types of utensils, he explained why. He said because they quicken the process of intoxication. And this shows the hikmah. And everything in the sharia, my brothers and sisters, has a hikmah. Everything that Allah legislates has a wisdom behind it. But it's not necessary, it's not necessary that we always know the hikmah. There is a hikmah for everything. There's no doubt about that. But whether we know it or not, this is something else. And it's important we mention this point because regardless if you know the hikmah behind something or not, if Allah and His Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam gave the ruling, we must say sama'na wa ata'na. Regardless if we know the hikmah or we don't. Because there is a distorted understanding that many people have where they struggle to accept the law of Allah Azza wa Jal unless they understand the reason behind it or the hikmah behind it. And this is an incorrect understanding because the wisdom will not always be known to you and me. And sometimes the wisdom is known to some people and it's not known to others. But that does not, that should not stop us from accepting the hukum of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, ever. And one of the great examples of that, even though the scholars sometimes give reasons and explanations, is why we make wudu after eating camel's meat. That's a huge question that gets asked. Why do we have to make wudu after we eat camel's meat? Why does camel's meat break the wudu? Yeah, some scholars gave reasons. Jazakallahu khairan. They said that the camel, it has a satanic strength. And in order to remove that satanic strength so that it doesn't affect you, you make wudu after eating its meat. This is ijtihad from the ulama. It does not necessarily mean it's 100% correct. But my brothers and sisters, whether we know the wisdom or not, we must accept and surrender and believe there is a hikmah behind it, whether we know it or we don't. Another example is the, the breastfeeding child, the boy. If he urinates on your clothes, all you are required to do is to sprinkle water 
over his urine. The breastfeeding baby boy, the one that's not eating solids. When he urinated in the lap of Rasulullah and Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi all he done was sprinkle water. As for the breastfeeding baby girl, it has to be washed. Some people say, why? What's the hikmah? The boy gets sprinkled, the girl gets washed. Again, some scholars give reasons and explanations. Doesn't necessarily mean that they're 100% correct. They could be, they could not be. But do we believe there is a hikmah? Of course there is. Do we have to know the hikmah? No, we don't. If you are a true submitter to Allah Azza wa Jal, you say, Sama'ana wa ata'ana. If the hikmah is known to you, alhamdulillah, that's a bonus. But if the hikmah is not known to you, it does not stop you from accepting the truth. We accept the truth regardless whether we know the wisdom behind something or we don't. But when we do know the hikmah, we should teach it. And that's why the Prophet ﷺ done here. He told them what's forbidden and then he explained why. In the hadith of Abu Sa'id al-Khudri, we also benefit when the Prophet ﷺ told them that they can't drink from these utensils, they asked him, what should we drink from? So the Prophet ﷺ told them, you can drink from water skins of animals. So then they said to the Prophet ﷺ, even if rats nibble on it, because the water skins, they told the Prophet ﷺ, where we are in our land, there's a lot of mice and rats, and they nibble on the water skin. And we know that the rat is najis. And the Prophet ﷺ said yes. And that shows that the haja permits what is not allowed. The haja, if something is a need or a necessity, it becomes permissible. Okay? And we benefit that from this part of the hadith. The Prophet ﷺ said, use water skin. Here the Prophet ﷺ, he led them to what is permissible after informing them what's not permissible. And the ulama say this is the understanding of the alim. When the alim gets asked a question, when someone wants to do something, if it's haram, a alim with alim and insight, he will stop them from doing the haram, but then he will give them the halal option. If there is one, he will lead them. So what is halal? And that's what the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam done here. He didn't tell them it's haram and he left it at that. He said it's haram but this is permissible. And in this hadith they were making that dua for the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam جَعَلَنِي اللَّهُ فِدَاءَكَ This is what they were saying when they were asking the Prophet sallallahu which means, may Allah allow us to sacrifice our lives for you, Ya Rasulullah. Is this dua allowed? They were saying to the Prophet ﷺ, may Allah allow us to sacrifice our lives for you. This dua was specific to the Prophet ﷺ. As many of the scholars mentioned, 
Imam al-Nawawi rahimahullah said, it's permissible for the Prophet wasallam and for other than him also. And Allah knows best. So that is the hadith of the four things he ordered and the four things he prohibited. We move on to the next chapter, which is titled, Bab al-Dua ila shahadatayn wa shara'i islam Calling people to the shahada and to the laws of Islam. This is the next chapter. And this chapter has one of the greatest ahadith of Islam. Without a doubt. The famous hadith of Mu'adh ibn Jabal. Radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Abdullah ibn Abbas narrated this hadith. That Mu'adh ibn Jabal radiallahu anhu said... Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam sent me to Yemen and he instructed me with the following. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he sent Mu'adh ibn Jabal to Yemen and he instructed Mu'adh radiallahu anhu with the following. He said to him, you will soon find yourself among Ahlul Kitab because Yemen there was Jews in Yemen. So the Prophet ﷺ is telling Mu'adh ibn Jabal, you are going to a people of the book, Ahlul Kitab. So let the first thing you call them to be la ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah. He then said, if they accept that from you, then tell them Allah has obligated upon them Five prayers during the day and the night. If they accept that, then tell them Allah has obligated the zakat, which is to be taken from their rich and given to their poor. And if they agree to this, do not choose the best of their wealth. Meaning, if they agree to pay the zakat, don't take the best of their wealth. And then he said to him, And beware of the dua of the oppressed, for there is no barrier between it and Allah. Beware of the dua of the one who's oppressed, because there's no barrier between the oppressed and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He then mentions the next narration. And he said the above hadith has been mentioned with a different chain and slightly different wording at the beginning. Then he mentioned the next narration. Same hadith. The Prophet ﷺ sent Mu'adh towards Yemen and he said to him, you will reach a people of the book. Let the first thing which you call them to be the worship of Allah. In the first hadith, he said, La ilaha illallah. Muhammad Rasulullah. In this narration, let the first thing you call them to be the worship of Allah Azza wa Jal. And if they accept that, then instruct them that Allah has obligated five prayers during the day and night. And if they accept that, then inform them Allah has made zakat obligatory on them, which is to be collected from their rich and distributed to the poor. And if they accept that, then take the zakat from them and avoid the best of their wealth. But it's the same hadith. 
Now this hadith, my brothers, it has so many benefits for us as Muslims, especially in the aspect of da'wah, as we will see. The hadith is narrated by Mu'adh ibn Jabal, radiyallahu ta'ala anhu. Mu'adh ibn Jabal, his kunya was Abu Abdul Rahman, al-Ansari, al-Khazraji, al-Madani, al-Badri. He witnessed the battle of Badr, radiyallahu ta'ala anhu, and he was an imam from the Sahaba, and he was considered to be from the greatest scholars of them. He passed away in the Sham, in Syria, during the plague. In that time, a plague had hit the Sham, and Mu'adh ibn Jabal radiallahu anhu, he died from that plague. In the year 18 Hijri, and he was only 35 years old, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, when he passed away. So Mu'adh ibn Jabal being such a great alim, yeah, and he was very young at that age. Yani in his 20s, when the Prophet ﷺ sent him to Yemen. The first thing the Prophet ﷺ said to him is, you're going to a people of the book. O Mu'adh, you're going to Yemen. They are Yahud, people of the book. And the people of the book are the Jews and the Christians. But Yemen had Jews there. Uh, the Ahlul Kitab are the Yahud and the Nasara, and whoever follows their religion from the Mushrikeen. Pay attention. Ahlul Kitab applies to the Jews and the Christians, and any Mushrik that becomes a Jew or a Christian. So if a Hindu or a Buddhist becomes a Jew or a Christian, they become part of Ahlul Kitab. But, if a Muslim becomes a Murtad, and he becomes a Jew or a Christian, he is not considered to be from Ahlul Kitab, according to the scholars of Islam. Because his ruling is different, he's a Murtad. For Ahlul Kitab only applies to the Jews and the Christians, and anyone from the Mushrikeen that joins them. As for a Muslim that leaves Islam and becomes a Jew or a Christian, he does not take the rulings of Ahlul Kitab. So this hadith, my brothers and sisters, we benefit a number of lessons from it. A number of drus. The first one is when the Prophet ﷺ tells Mu'adh, you're going to Ahlul Kitab. This was an amazing advice from the Prophet ﷺ in order to make Mu'adh aware who he's going to give da'wah to. And that's one of the greatest lessons in da'wah. When you give da'wah, my brothers, you have to know the people you're talking to. Otherwise, you will fail in your da'wah. Why did Rasulullah tell Mu'adh you're going to Jews so that Mu'adh can prepare what to say to them? Because in da'wah, everyone is not the same. People are different types. And according to the different types of people, you talk to them accordingly. For example, the way you give a Muslim da'wah is not the same way you give a kafir da'wah. 
The way you give da'wah to Ahlul Kitab, the Jews and the Christians, is not the same way you give da'wah to Hindus and Buddhists. The same way, the way you give da'wah to someone who believes in Allah, who believes in a God, is not the same way you give da'wah to an atheist. Because if you tell an atheist Allah said or God said, he'll tell you, I don't believe in God. But Ahlul Kitab, you can debate them on the book. Everyone has a different approach. And the ulama, they done this in their da'wah, even from the past. We all know the famous story of Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah, when he debated the atheists. He did not debate the atheists with the Qur'an or the Sunnah or the Ijma' or Aqwal al-Sahaba. He debated them with proof for the existence of Allah. He debated them with intellect. The famous story of the tree falling and carving itself into a boat and then he crossed the river. For everyone has a different approach. And the Prophet ﷺ taught Mu'adh radiallahu anhu that he's going to people of the book so he can prepare. We also benefit from this hadith that it is legislated to send the du'at to other lands in order to call people to tawheed and to teach them the sharia. This is part of the deen. For the du'at and people of knowledge to go to other lands in order to call people to Islam. Because that's what the Prophet ﷺ done with Mu'adh radiallahu anhu. Number three, we also benefit that it is permissible to reside in the land of kufr if you are calling them to Allah. Because Yemen was not Muslims. And Mu'adh went and he stayed there. Because he was calling them to Allah. But this is one of the reasons why it is permissible to move to a non-Muslim land. If it is for the purpose of calling them to the deen. We also benefit from this hadith that the shahadatain work hand in hand. Rasulullah said to Mu'adh, let the first thing you call them to be La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. He did not just say La ilaha illallah. And that shows you cannot have La ilaha illallah unless you have Muhammad Rasulullah. One does not work without the other. It also teaches us Tawheed is the first thing you call to. Some people say when I give da'wah, what should I call to? Or I want to give someone da'wah, what do I start with? You start with Tawheed. That's what Allah and His Messenger وسلم, taught us. Look at the Prophet telling Mu'adh, let the first thing you call them to be, La ilaha illallah. For Tawheed is always the first thing we call to. The Hadith is also proof that you accept Khabar Ahad in Aqeedah. And this is the Aqeedah of Ahl Sunnah. That you can accept khabar ahad in aqidah. Because the mu'tazila and the ash'ira reject this. 
They say anything in aqidah must come from a large number of people. Here, aqidah is the shahada. La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. And Nabi Sallallahu sent Mu'adh on his own. So Yemen accepting it from Mu'adh is accepting Khabar Ahad. And that's a great dalil there in itself that refutes the Ashaira and those who follow their way. And since Tawheed is the first, first thing commanded, it is a proof that the actions after it will not be accepted without Tawheed. Because he said, call them to the Shahada, if they accept that, then inform them of the Salah, then inform them of the Zakat. That shows without the Shahada, the rest will not be accepted. We also benefit from this that the witr is not obligatory. Because the Prophet ﷺ said to him, inform them Allah has obligated five prayers. He told him, five prayers. And when the Prophet ﷺ sent Mu'adh, it was towards the end of his life. The witr prayer was already legislated. So, the argument that the witr hadn't been legislated cannot work. Because when Mu'adh went to Yemen, they were praying the witr. It was already legislated. So this hadith is dalil that the witr is not obligatory. And that's the opinion of the majority. Malik, Shafi'i and Ahmad. Abu Hanifa rahimahullah, his madhab says the witr is obligatory. This hadith shows otherwise. And the hadith also, also teaches us that the salah is the greatest obligation after the shahadatain, because it came straight after it. After the shahadatain, he mentioned the salah. And the importance of the zakat, because the zakat came straight after the salah also. The hadith also teaches us that zakat is obligatory on everyone, including the young child, even the orphans. Because the Prophet ﷺ said, zakat is to be taken from their rich and given to their poor. He left it general, from their rich. And that's the correct opinion. Anyone who has the wealth, he pays zakat, no matter how old he is, or she is. And the hadith is also proof that zakat is not given to the rich. Because he said it's taken from the rich and given to the poor. And it also teaches us that you do not take the best of wealth when collecting the zakat. When collecting the zakat, you don't take the people's best wealth, nor do you take the worst. The sunnah is to take the middle. Not the best and not the worst, but the middle. And in this hadith, he didn't mention hajj or fasting. And the ulama mentioned a number of reasons for that. From the most famous of them is when the Prophet ﷺ sent Mu'adh, it wasn't yet time for Hajj or Ramadan. So he just mentioned fasting and zakat because he knew Mu'adh was a alim. He knew that when the time for Hajj and Ramadan came, Mu'adh will call them to that as well. So it's like the Prophet ﷺ summarized what he needs to call them to. The hadith also teaches us 
that it's permissible to make dua against the oppressor. Because he said here, fee the dua of the oppressed. Because there is no barrier between it and Allah. Why did he say that to Mu'adh? Just in case he takes the best of their wealth in zakat. It's like he's telling him, Mu'adh, if you take the best of their wealth, you're oppressing them. Don't oppress them because you should fear the dua of the oppressed. And that shows that it's permissible to make dua against the oppressor. The ulama mention a mas'ala on this point. What's better? Is it better to make dua against the oppressor or not? Is it better to make dua against the one who oppresses you or is it better to be patient? The ulama and Imam Ahmad rahimahullah from them, he said not making dua is better. If the one oppressing you is a Muslim. Not making dua is better, but it's permissible. They all say it's permissible. But which is better, which is more rewarding for you? Not to make it. But then the ulama gave a detailed explanation. Some scholars, they added something to that. They said if the oppressor's oppression is aam, meaning if he's oppressing a lot of people, and there's a great benefit in making dua against him, then it's better to make dua against him. But if it's one person oppressing another person, his oppression is on one person, it's between two people. Here Imam Ahmad and other ulama said, the one that's oppressed, his patience will be more rewarding for him. His patience will be more rewarding. But someone whose oppression is on a wide scale, la, the dua against him is better. This is what the scholars have mentioned. And the hadith also teaches us that when you call or teach others Islam, it's always best to go step by step. You don't chuck things on people at once, especially new Muslims. Because look at the Prophet's tactic. He didn't even say teach them one, two, three, four. He started with the Shahada and he stopped. He said, if they accept that, then move on. If they accept that, move on. And that's a great lesson. It teaches you to always start with what's important and then you work on the branches. When you're giving da'wah to someone, you work on the fundamentals. And then you work on the branches. And then you work on the branches. And inshallah we will continue in our next lesson bi-idhnillahi ta'ala. Wallahu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam wa barak ala nabina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. This program was presented by Al-Bayan Radio, the voice of Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah.